Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Ventures, we uh, dive into week four of Reframe, where we're going through the book of Philippians together. Uh, we're going to look at one of the greatest passages in all the Bible. Uh, in fact, you, if you got your Bible, you can turn to Philippians 2. But he, even as we start at the beginning, I thought maybe I'll put a couple of disclaimers out there. Um, I, I don't know about you, I've been watching the Olympics and watching you know programs, and it feels like almost every commercial break has a commercial for a new drug that's being introduced. Uh, pharmacy industry, and and they always have the kind of the same feel. They they take a song and it's a happy song. You see these happy people, and it's some drug that's going to cure you know clear up your skin or it's going to, I mean some of blood pressure different issues that it does. And they describe the drug for about ten seconds, and then for twenty seconds the rest of the commercial they start the disclaimers. And I mean they they start going through it. it's like you know this drug and some people they experience nausea or discomfort, or the drops in their blood pressure, or dizziness, and then still happy images. Hey, life's great. And then sudden blackouts, blood thinning, weight gain, hair loss, loss of appetite, blurred vision, still happy images. Constipation, swollen feet, exploding bladders. Well, maybe not exploding bladders, but it does. It gets to these, these points that you look at it, and I'll ask myself sometime, who would take this? Now, again, because of the truth of advertising, they have to put all those different things in, and most people don't experience all of that, I would hope. But there's a point when you hear those things that you realize, well, I guess they take it because they so desperately need this. This is so vital to their life. You know, when we come in this Philippians 2 passage, it's a great passage. I just want to give you two disclaimers, and there's no dizziness, blackouts, or nothing's going to explode. It's not like that. But two things that, that I want to make sure right at the beginning. When we go through this passage, disclaimer number one, there are parts of this passage, a second, especially in the second half of it, that you're not going to fully understand. Now, I don't say that to dismiss you. In fact, as soon as I made that disclaimer, some of you lean forward and you go, oh, really? Tim, I know my Bible. I was in BSF or I was a navigator. I've studied Philippians 57 times before. I, I'm not discounting your biblical knowledge. What I'm saying, there's some parts of it, especially in the second half of this passage, that are so unbelievable in what Christ has done, it's hard for our brains to even comprehend it. The second disclaimer, and this is the one I want you to really hear, most of this passage is not hard to understand at all. I mean, it, it is absolutely clear in the terminology that's used but you're not going to like it. Now, again, I'm not making a judgment about your character. I just know the power of this passage and the way it speaks directly and the way it cuts across all of us, all of us. I'm not putting you in a category that I'm not in either. Now, when I say that with those disclaimers, you go, well, why would we dive in this passage? We dive in this passage the same way that someone would take a drug we desperately need this passage. In fact, if I were going to prescribe any passage for the church in America today, it would be this passage. If this passage were lived out, I think it could have more impact in churches, in marriages, 
in relationships, even in the way you see your own life. That's how powerful this passage is. So, so what are we diving into as we look at this? Remember, just give you a little background. Paul is writing this church in Philippi, church he loves, church that he, he has almost nothing but praise for. And as he describes this church and the joy that he experiences, both because of them, but especially because of what God's done in them, he's now at that place where he's turning and he's calling them to some action. Let's look at the reframe verse of the week last week. In it, Paul says, only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, no matter what, you always want to let the manner of your life, your conduct, or as a citizen of the kingdom of God, you live in a way that you're worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, again, it's not worthy to earn the gospel. That, that wouldn't be the gospel. But because Christ has changed your life, you want to live in a way that reflects that. And, and remember last week, he was writing to the church as a whole. And, and those three commands that he gave them, that they need to stand together, stand firm on God's word. Don't waver on that. They need to strive together, keep moving forward, sharing the gospel. And they need to stay together. And uh, this passage is really building on that last one. In fact, notice what's the one consistent word through all this. Together, together, together. Now, now why is he emphasizing that? Because as great as this Philippian church is, they were having some struggles. In fact, we'll see in a, a couple of chapters, there's a couple of women in the church that he's going to call out by name that were really disagreeing with each other. And it was causing division. And so as Paul looks at what's going on in the world, he recognizes how important it is to stay together, to be unified as a church. And, and if we're honest, it's not just the Philippian church that struggles with this. I mean, to some degree, all churches do. I mean, all of us, as we look around, we look at these different people in the church. I love the way Ben Patterson puts it. He says, people in the church are like porcupines in a snowstorm. We need each other to keep warm, but we prick each other if we get too close. And, and you feel that at times. At times you go, man, I need the church. But then as you get closer in the church, man, these people can be hard to be around. I mean, for all of us. I love how Heather King describes her experience. Heather King, she's a commentator on NPR, and uh, she, she struggled with alcoholism. And God used the church as she dealt with her alcoholism, and through it, she came to Christ. And, and she describes her experience, though, when she did. She said, my first impulse was to think, dear God, I don't want to get sober, or in the case of church, worship with these nutcases or these boring people or people with different politics and taste in music and food and books or whatever. I love how she, she describes, she says, nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves, people who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the church is the best place, the only place to be while we all struggle to figure out what that means. 
We come because we're hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God. That He loved us or that He also loved everyone else. I mean, those are great words. Because we don't, we don't handpick all the people that are part of church. God's brought us together. And, and that together can be hard for the best of church. E- even a church like Philippi, they can struggle with together. And a church like Venture. And when you go through a season like this. So Paul writes this very directly. How do you do this life together? Let's read as he tells us how. Look at it. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So if there. Now, this is a little trickier in the English. This word if in Greek, it can be translated if or since. So Paul's not wondering, is there encouragement in Christ? He's not wondering, is there love? If anything, he's saying, since you've experienced this, since as believers we've experienced encouragement of Christ, since we know there is comfort in love, since we know that the Spirit unites us together, since we know there's affection and sympathy that we have, since all those things are true, he he tells the Philippians and he's telling us, hey, why don't you make my joy complete? Why don't you help me take that next step of joy? And this is how you do it. You have the the same mind, same love, full accord, and one mind. I mean, you feel that same one. Here's what he's saying to us. Look at it in the point. Because of what we experience in Christ, because of what he's done for all of us collectively, we need to make a collective choice as a church. Collectively, we choose to be united, loving, and like-minded. United, loving, and like-minded. Now, here's what I mean with this. When we say united, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. It doesn't mean that you only go to a church where everybody's exactly like you. You're only around people who think exactly like you, have the same preferences as you. Uh, Unity is not uniformity. It's always been true about the church. I mean, in the early church, Paul said, Man, in Christ, there's neither Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter what country you're from. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter male or female. I love when it describes around his throne, there will be people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. This beautiful mosaic of all different peoples and cultures that are brought together because we've been united by Christ. It's one of the most beautiful parts of church. It's one of the things I love about venture. Man, I love walking the halls of venture. I love being in the worship service. I love meeting people from all over the world who God's brought together that we get to be a church together. But when you have people that are from all over, man, we, we are not uniform in preferences. We're not uniform in the way we see life. But we can be unified. We can choose to be a unity in that. With that as well, when it says loving, loving does not just mean feelings, but rather attitude and action. It's not that you just found this one church and that you just naturally love everyone there. 
Or that magically there's just this group of people and we always have these feelings of love for each other. I promise you, the longer you're in any church, the more you get to know people. And those feelings of love can rise and sometimes those feelings are low. And some people are hard to love. I mean, some people, even as you see them walking towards you, you know this is going to be a more difficult conversation. This will be hard to love. It's true for all of us. The, the love that it's describing here is not waiting for you to feel it. It says, I have an attitude. I'm choosing to love them. I have actions. I put love in service. I choose to serve them. I, I choose to, to do for them what Christ is calling me to do. That's far different than just a feeling. Uh, the third part of that, and this is that one, when he uses those terms like-minded, and this is really important, like-minded does not mean we have the same opinions about everything, but rather we have the same way of approaching everything. Big difference. Doesn't mean we have the same opinions. Again, if you take people from all different status, all different cultures, all different walks of life, and together we're in a church, we're going to have different opinions. And if there's ever been a time period, I mean, you take the last couple of years, the different opinions within the body of Christ, man, it is felt more like never before. I mean, if you, you don't think we have different opinions, I encourage you, get on Twitter for about five minutes. And, and you'll be like, get on Christian Twitter for five minutes. And the differences of opinion. We see life differently. And, and throw in major issues like COVID, and there's a lot of different opinions. And we feel it. We feel it like a week in this as we come to do church together. I, I read this week, uh, Nate Silver is a pollster. Um, he's a pollster. He works for political organizations, others, a lot of news organizations. He's a pretty well-known pollster across the U.S. And, and he broke down kind of the categories of what they're getting of adults in our country when it comes to COVID. And he said there's, there's five groups. And, and as I read through this, I'm not saying one is right or the other. I'm just telling you these are the opinions, these are the perspectives of the, the bulk of the adult co uh, population in our country. He, he said group one, or group A is about 25% of the population. They're vaccinated, but they're not ready to return to normal. In fact, they think we've opened too fast. They would be very open to lockdown again. So it's kind of 25% that they're vaccinated and, and afraid and think we've opened up too much. The second group is group B, 30%. They're vaccinated. They're kind of watching Delta. And they're in favor of modest restriction, like indoor masking, if needed. So you got the, the one group, 25%, man, they think we're too open. 30% that go, okay, we'll watch Delta. And if we need a little bit more, maybe modest restriction. Group C is 15%. This is a group that's vaccinated and they're completely over the pandemic. They want no more restrictions, nothing else. It's just move forward as normal. Group D is about 25%. This is a group that's unvaccinated, and they're against any restrictions as well. So, so C and D have kind of the same approach at this point. C is 15% that it's vaccinated and they don't want any more restrictions. D is 25% they're unvaccinated. They don't want any restrictions. And then the final group is group E. This is 5%. This is a group, they're unvaccinated, but mainly because they can't be. Either something with their uh, immunocompromised, uh, some other treatment that they can't take the vaccine. 
And they actually would like there to be really strong restrictions. They match actually group A in a lot of ways. They just can't take the vaccine. Now, again, I don't go through those because I want to go, oh man, which one's right? Here's the only reason I read through those. You probably fall somewhere on that spectrum. And, and wherever you fall, isn't it good just to stop for a moment and realize there's a lot of people in this country that have opinion that's different than mine. We're, we're going to have different opinions. And, and that's about something like a pandemic that we're struggling with. Take it now to a church level. And, and you know, I, I've been a pastor for over 30 years. L- l- let me tell you, there's a lot of different opinions. We have different opinions about how we should do music, different opinions about what you should wear. I mean, a lot of people would say, man, a pastor preaching in this, that's wrong. And, and that's a perspective and opinion. Opinion about what you can do in a church, what you can't do. We have different opinions about gray areas that Scripture talks about. Like, what are you allowed to do? And some people have a, a freedom of conscience that Scripture talks about. Man, they're free to eat this meat. They're free to, to do that activity. And others, they don't. Now, again, I love the clarity that Scripture gives about the things that matter most. And, and there's this recognition that as human beings, we will have different opinions, but having a different opinion doesn't mean that we can't be like-minded. Like-minded means that we'll all come at any issue with the same approach. We'll all come at it with a different mindset. We're coming from different opinions, but in the church as Christians, we're all choosing, I'm going to have the same mindset on any issue. And you go, okay, what is that mindset? Well, Paul will tell us exactly. Look at the verse. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, I said this is our reframe verse of the week. This is a verse to memorize. This verse is so critical. This verse is the game changer. I said that it could change marriages, it changed churches, change relationships, change the way you see yourself even. It's this verse lived out. It's literally life-changing in so many ways. And it's so radical in it of what Paul is calling us to do. It's one that we, like I said, we easily understand. But if you really dive into this, I I don't like doing this. Especially when it's one of those issues we're coming to the table and I'm of a different opinion than someone else. And they're over there holding an opinion that frankly, I look at their opinion and go, man, that is the wrong way to look at this. Remember, we can have different opinions, but here's our unifying mindset. That no matter where I'm coming from, am I willing to come and be like-minded in that? See, here's what Paul's calling us to. Because of what we collectively have experienced in Christ, here's where I personally have to make a choice. And I must personally choose to let him change my motivation, my attitude, and even my outlook. I've got to let him change my motivation. What do I mean in that? Well, that natural motivation is wanting what I want because I believe I deserve it. When he said that, don't, don't be motivated from your selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is wanting what I want. 
It's I want it because I want it. It's my ambition. And, and with that, that, that conceit, that vain conceit he describes, that's because I believe I deserve it. And this is hardwired in all of us. Uh, Augustine, the, the great church father from the 5th century, he, he, he had a Latin phrase, incurvitus in se. And it literally meant that the human soul is curved in on itself. That, that our natural propensity is to be curved in toward what I want. Because at the end of the day, I think I deserve it. See, that's a natural motivation. And then you put with that, our, our natural attitude is, at the very least, I'm as important as anyone else. And that's the best case scenario, at the very least. And when I look around a room, now if you're a narcissist, you take it to the most. A narcissist looks across the room and says, I am more important than every single person here. Most of us aren't there. But I, I would say all of us, we, we would look across the room and, and we're looking around, well, I'm at least as important as them. Uh, I, I matter as much as they do. Now, again, Scripture's not teaching that you're not important. That's not what Paul's teaching. Of course you're important. Christ died for you. This is about your choice. This isn't about a choice somebody can do on you. That'd be oppression if someone determines that. This is what you're determining inside, though. That inside, when, when, when I look around... We have a propensity to kind of think, well, I'm kind of a big deal to me, or I want my way. If you, if you really want to test this with the attitude, because a lot of it go, I don't, I don't act like I'm too important. Maybe you don't, but how do you act when someone treats you like you're not important? Boy, that's when it really flares up. I, I remember years ago when I was in seminary, um, I, I had a number of jobs. We were so poor. I was working at the seminary, and... Uh, was working on this four years master's program. So it was an intense program, all these languages and that. So one of the jobs I took was cleaning pools. And I, I didn't really like it, but it paid pretty decent. And I'll never forget, some of the people that had the worst systems, they never would maintain it, had the highest expectations. And there was this one pool I hated to clean because the pump was old, it had bad suction. And I cleaned the pool and I was loading up all my stuff. I had all my gear and I'm walking out and I hear this guy come out and I never liked dealing with him. And he comes out, and I hear him as I'm right at the gate. He calls out, pool boy. Hey, pool boy. And I'm like, pool boy. <laughs> I mean, my first thought was like, yeah, I'm 30 years old. I'm working on my master's. Call me pool boy. And I turn around, and I'm like, yes. And he's standing there. He's literally standing beside the pool. He's got a jelly donut, part of it on his face, dirty T-shirt. And it was almost out of spite. He's like, hey, pool boy. You missed a spot right here. I want you to come back and do this. And everything in me wanted to look at him and go, well, you missed a few spots too. And I could feel it just welling up. And as I got my equipment out, I started just grumbling. And I was like, really, God? Really? I got to do this for him? And I'll never forget as I was just sitting there grumbling to God. It's like he said to me, well, when did you get so important? When, when did you get so important someone can't treat you like a servant? Which is not what I wanted to hear. I wanted God to do, you know, like smite him or something. But he wanted me to deal with it. And, and it's interesting, you know, those times when people, when somebody treats you in a way where they literally are treating you 
like maybe even their servant. How do we respond at a soul level? I mean, it's a great indicator of what is my attitude. And then you put that, that third part of it, this natural outlook is, I have to look out for me. This is what the world tells you. You have to look out for you. Why? Because nobody else will. And if you don't look out for you, then everybody's going to walk all over you. And, and this is maybe real sweet to think, and this is sweet verses, but at the end of the day, in the real world, you better look out for you because you're as important as anybody else. And you have your desires and your wants, and because they're yours, you should desire them. Man, that's the mantra of life. And Paul cuts across it. See, look what Paul is telling us. You, you can see it here. Because of what we experience in Christ, because of what we collectively have experienced, here's what I must choose. I must personally choose, and here's the key word, to humbly consider that others are more important than me and actively look out for their interest. Man, that I, I make this choice because I'm secure in who I am in Christ. I'm secure in my importance in Him. I'm secure in what He's done. I'm secure in who He created me to be. I'm secure because I have those things in Christ and I've experienced them in Christ and I experience it in His church. Man, it gives me this freedom that I could look at others and go, you know what, I'm going to make the decision. You're more important than me. And again, it's a decision you can only make. It's not something somebody can force on you. If somebody comes along and forces it, that's oppression. But boy, when you embrace it personally, man, there's a freedom that comes out of that. And you actively look out for their interest. You're actively looking for ways you could serve them. Actively looking for ways that, that you could just, in tangible ways because you identify with where they are, because you know what Christ has done for you, because of the mercy you've experienced, you share it with others. I, I love the story Robert Tuttle tells of a nine-year-old little boy who uh, was sitting in class one day, and he looks down, and to his horror, he's wet his pants. And he sees a puddle starting to form under the desk. And he knows it, 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 any second now, somebody's going to notice this. And the boys will never stop making fun of him and the girls will never talk to him again. And, and he puts his head down and literally just goes, Jesus, help. I need some help right now. And looks up and the teacher's starting to walk toward him and he knows it's about to be discovered. And right at that minute, little girl Susie is walking by with a goldfish bowl that's just filled up with just water alone, taking it back over to the shelf. And she stumbles and pours the water completely over. And, and the teacher, instead of coming to correct, runs over and like, oh, we've got to help you. And instead of ridicule, he suddenly has sympathy. As the teacher takes him down to the gym class to put on some gym shorts for the rest of the day, he comes back and all the students are helping to clean up his desk. And, and as only kids can do in that moment, his sympathy also leads to Susie's ridicule. As they start telling her, Susie, you're so klutzy. Susie, you can't help clean up. Susie, just go sit down. In fact, it continued most of the day where he had sympathy and she had ridicule. And finally, at the end of the day, they were standing at the bus stop. And he leaned over to Susie and just with a whisper, he said, Susie, you did that on purpose, didn't you? 
And she kind of smiled at him. And she said, I wet my pants once too. It was just one simple act. But she made a choice in the moment. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to care more about him than me. Even at her own expense. Guys, it's a simple story, but I really do think life is filled with choices like that day by day. And I promise you this, church is filled with choices like that. That day by day, you're going to have experience after experience where you're going to have the opportunity and you look at other people and you look at other people in this church and you look at their needs and you look at what's going on in their life and you've got to make the choice, man, am I going to look out for me? Am I going to put my interests first? Am I going to put my time first? Am I going to put my career first, my home first? All the things that come natural to us. Or will I choose to serve them? Even if they're a person that has a totally different opinion than me. Because we may have different opinions, but we can still be like-minded. You know how you live this out? You just live it out like Jesus did. The second part of this passage, we don't have time to plumb the depths of it. It's that part that that has categories that blow our mind. But I want you to see this because Paul points out for us, Jesus is our example. Jesus' example. Look what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, what he just taught us, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I mean, this profound passage, it describes Jesus, even though he did not consider equality with God, all the things that were his as being a member of the Trinity, as being God. You got to remember for eternity past, before Jesus was ever born, he's always existed as God. And, And in that existence, he's had all the pleasure of eternity. He's had all the love of eternity. He's had all the worship of the angels who worshiped him constantly. He had all all the, the joy that was experienced there. He had all the power that's there. He has all of that, all that abundance, but he did not consider that something I got to hold on to at all cost. And, and in this mystery that we don't fully understand, the word there, kenosis, he emptied himself. He never stopped being God, but he became fully human. He took on a body. And in that descent from heaven to earth, he not only chose to come down to earth, notice as well, he chose to come down to a poor family. He chose to live an ignoble life. He wasn't a king. He wasn't known as this great person. 30 years he worked in a carpenter shop. He chose to be a servant who went down to the point that he's willing to die on a cross. The most excruciating, the most embarrassing, the most shameful way to die. You you want to talk about a journey down. What Jesus was willing to do for us in that journey. What it describes is that that Christ purposely descended in humility because he placed our interest above his own. He purposefully descended. Guys, in the kingdom of God, the journey of greatness is always a journey down. 
It's always a journey down. And Christ was willing, and what an example of instead of looking out for himself, instead of holding on what was rightfully his, he says, I'll release. Because I love them so much. I'll not only come to their planet, I'll come as a servant. I'll not only be a servant, I'll die on a cross. And he died for you, and he died for me. And, and he shows us in that the descent of greatness. But not only that, I love how it, it turns and how Paul turns it. Therefore, God has excitedly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, I told you there's so much in this passage of, of his descent, but his descent leads to an ascent. And what it points out to us, and notice in this, the point here is that Christ's humiliation resulted in the greatest exaltation. No one has taken a greater descent down, and no one has ever been exalted more. And it shows for us, this is how the kingdom of God works. This is what God calls us to. This is why you and I, we can live that radical way where we look at other people and we go, I'm not going to put my interests first, I'm going to put their interests first. I'm not going to think I'm more important, I'm going to think they're more important. I'm not going to just serve me, I'm going to serve them. We can live that way because Christ showed us this is greatness in his kingdom. If you want to see if you're growing, you know, we always talk about growing in Christ and, and we often equate growing to just knowledge. Man, I know more about the Bible, I know these things. It's certainly a part of your growth. But you, you really want to mark growth? It, it's opposite of what we think. We, we've got a door jam in our house, and it's got all these marks with all of our kids. And over the years, you, you mark it as they keep growing. And, and their growth is marked as they go up. Guys, in the kingdom of God, you want to mark growth? It's always down. It's always when I'm willing to be more humble. It always is marked by when I'll serve more. And, and if we would embrace that, if we would recognize it, if we would be less concerned about climbing the ladder of success and more concerned about descending the path of greatness, we'll be more like Jesus. And when we do this, when we do this, when we personally live this way, we reveal him to the world. When we make that personal choice, people see Jesus. People see it in a way beyond our words. They see his character. They see what he was about. I, I, I love the story Jeffrey Collins tells. Um, he, he was talking about a Friday afternoon. He's Friday afternoon and he's there. It'd been a long, hard week. He worked in a ministry called Love and Action where they would serve people, especially the neediest. And it was Friday, it was the end of the day, he was ready, he had the night planned, he was going to dinner with friends. And he thought, if anybody deserves it, I deserve it this week. And the phone rang. And, and on the phone, he could hear Jimmy. And Jimmy said, hey, hey Jeff, I'm really bad. Uh, my fever's running, I'm really sick. Jimmy had AIDS and a number of illnesses from it. He was one of their clients they would serve. 
And everything in Jeff just got mad in that moment. He's like, I don't want to serve Jimmy. I, 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 I deserve a night off. And he hung up the phone and he got in the car and he drove to Jimmy's apartment. But the whole way there, as he describes it, he said, I was raging inside. And he, he walks in the apartment and there's Jimmy laying on the sofa and he, he's got a fever and a blanket over him. And he had thrown up. He'd vomited all, all below him. And so the room just smelled rancid. And Jeff thought to himself, well, of course. And he went and got a bucket and some soapy water and got on the floor and started just scrubbing. And uh, Jimmy said, hey, Jeff, thanks for coming. And he, he really, he said, I feigned like I cared. But in that moment, I didn't feel it. And then Russ came down, one of his roommates. And Russ had AIDS too. And as Russ came down, as soon as he smelled the vomit there, he sat in the chair and he started throwing up. And Jeff was like, this can't get worse. And so as he finished cleaning up Jimmy, he went over and just started scrubbing the chair underneath Russ. And as he sat there just mad, Russ started just staring at him. And then finally he smiled and he said, I understand. I understand. And Jimmy weakly looked at his friend and, and said to him, Russ, what do you understand? And then Russ started crying. And he said, I understand what Jesus is like. He's like Jeff, isn't he? And as he said those words, Jeff just stopped. Because everything in him didn't feel like Jesus. But he was serving like Jesus. And he got up, and as Russ was crying, he gave him a hug. And he sat down with him and shared with him again the gospel that he had been trying to share. But this time, Russ received it. And he prayed, and he accepted Christ that night. God began that good work. But God modeled that good work. Because a guy who, even though he didn't feel like it, was willing to live like this. And someone could see Jesus. See, when we do that, they see Jesus. And then when we do this together, this is the last point I say, when we collectively, as a church, live this way, man, the world knows we're His. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples. How? By the way you love each other. And guys, the love he was describing is not just some feeling of love. It's the kind of love that even if we disagree, even if we have different perspectives, even if we're hard to love, even if there's areas of life where we want to look out for us, we make the choice that I'm not going to look out for my own selfish ambition. I'm not going to be motivated by my conceit, who I am. I'm willing to consider others more important than me. And I will look out for their interest, even at my cost. These are radical verses. But I'll say it again, as I said in the beginning. If we would live them, they change churches. They change marriages. They change relationships. They literally can change the way we do and see life. And they change the way the world sees the church.
because they see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for these powerful words, but I confess um, it's hard for me to live this. It's hard to see people and love people this way. I thank you that Jesus did this for me and Jesus is working in me. And so I pray would he work in us. Lord, in in a time period where it feels like churches everywhere are so divided, we want to be united. And not united because we all have the same opinion, but united because we have the same Savior. And that we're willing sacrificially to live like he lived. Lord, I thank you that you never give up on me and you've never given up on us. And I thank you for the one who made this possible. In the name of Jesus Christ. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.